Book One, Chapter Seven of History of the Reformation in the Sixteenth Century, Volume One, by Jean Henri Mel Daubigny, translated by Henry Beveridge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Christopher Smith. Chapter Seven: Literature, Dante, Printing, Reuchlin, His Struggle with the Dominicans. Thus princes and people, the living members of the church, and the theologians, laboured, each in their sphere, to prepare the work which the sixteenth century was about to carry into effect. But there was another auxiliary which was to lend its aid in the Reformation. I mean literature. The human mind was expanding, a circumstance which must of itself had led to its emancipation. If a small seed fall close to an old wall, as it grows into a tree, it will push down the wall. The pontiff of Rome had become tutor to the nations, and his superior intelligence had made the task easy to him. He had long kept them in a state of minority, but resistance now broke forth on all sides. This venerable tutelage, which had been primarily established by the principles of eternal life and of civilization which Rome had imparted to barbarous nations, could no longer be exercised without opposition. A formidable adversary had met her in the face and was prepared to control her. The natural tendency of the human mind to expand, to investigate, and acquire knowledge had given birth to this new power. Man opened his eyes, and at every step questioned the proceedings of that long-respected guide under whose direction, while blindfolded, he had moved on without saying a word. In regard to the nations of new Europe, the age of infancy had passed away, and that of manhood had begun. To the childlike simplicity which believed everything had succeeded a spirit of curiosity, an intellect not to be satisfied without sifting everything to the utmost. It was asked for what end God had spoken to the world, and whether men had a right to station themselves as mediators between God and their brethren. There was only one thing which could have saved the church, and this was to raise herself still higher above the people. To keep on a level with them was not enough, but so far from this she was even found to be far beneath them, having begun to descend at the same time that they began to rise. At the period when mankind began to ascend to the regions of intellect, the priesthood was grovelling below among earthly pursuits and worldly interests. This phenomenon has repeatedly appeared in history. The wings of the eaglet were full-fledged, and what hand was high enough to prevent it from taking its flight? The human mind made its first start in Italy. Scholasticism and romantic poetry had at no time reigned unopposed. Italy never entirely lost the remembrance of antiquity, and this remembrance, having been strongly awakened towards the end of the Middle Ages, soon gave the mind a new impulse. Even in the fourteenth century, Dante and Petrarch restored the honour of the ancient Roman poets, at the same time that the former gave the most powerful popes a place in his hell, and the latter boldly protested for the primitive constitution of the church. At the beginning of the fifteenth century, John of Ravenna taught Latin literature with applause at Padua and Florence, 
while Chrysoloras at Florence and Pavia interpreted the beautiful writers of Greece. While in Europe light was thus coming forth from the prisons in which it had been confined, the East was sending new beams to the West. The standard of the Osmanlis, planted in 1453 on the walls of Constantinople, had put the learned to flight. They had in consequence transported the literature of Greece into Italy, where the torch of the ancients rekindled minds which had lain smothered for so many ages. George of Trebisond, Argyropolos, Bessarion, Lascaris, Chalcondylas, among many others, inspired the West with their love of Greece and its noblest productions. The patriotic feelings of the Italians were thus stimulated, and a great number of learned men appeared in Italy. Of these, the most illustrious were Gasparino, Aretin, Poggio, and Valla, who strove to restore the honour of Roman antiquity and place it on a footing with that of Greece. In this way a great flood of light had appeared, and Rome could not but suffer by it. The passion for antiquity, which took possession of the humanists, had a great effect in weakening the attachment to the church in minds of the highest order, for no man can serve two masters. At the same time, the studies in which the learned were engaged put them in possession of a new class of instruments which were unknown to the schoolmen, and by means of which they could test and decide upon the lessons of the church. Finding that beauties which charmed them in classical authors existed in profusion in the Bible and not in the works of theologians, the humanists were quite prepared to give the Bible precedence before the doctors. By reforming taste, they prepared a reformation in faith. The literati, it is true, loudly protested that their pursuits were not at variance with the belief of the church, but yet they had assailed the schoolmen long before the reformers began to do it, and played off their wit on these barbarians, those Teutons who, living, lived not. Some even proclaimed doctrines of the gospel, and assailed Rome in the objects of her dearest affection. Already Dante, while adhering to many Roman dogmas, had proclaimed the power of faith in terms similar to those which the first reformers employed. It is true faith, he said, that makes us citizens of heaven. Faith, according to the gospel doctrine, is the principle of life. It is the feeble spark which, spreading always wider and wider, at length becomes a living flame and shines within us like a star in heaven. Without faith, no good works, no honesty of life can give us aid. How great soever our sins may be, the arms of divine grace are greater still and wide enough to embrace whatever turns towards God. The soul is not lost by the anathema of the pontiffs, and eternal love can always reach it so long as there remains one bloom of hope. From God, from God alone, through faith our justice comes. And speaking of the church, Dante exclaims, O my bark, how ill-loaded thou art! O Constantine, what mighty evil was engendered, I will not say by thy conversion, but by that offering which the rich father then received from thee. At a later period, Laurentius Valla, 
applying the study of antiquity to the opinions of the church, denies the authenticity of the correspondence between Christ and King Abgarus, rejects the tradition as to the origin of the Apostles' Creed, and saps the foundation of the pretended inheritance which the popes held of Constantine. Still, however, the great light which the study of antiquity threw out in the fifteenth century was fitted only to destroy and not to build up. The honour of saving the church could not be given either to Homer or Virgil. The revival of letters, sciences, and arts did not found the Reformation. The paganism of the poets, on reappearing in Italy, rather strengthened the paganism of the heart. The scepticism of the school of Aristotle, and a contempt of everything not connected with philology, took possession of many of the literati, and engendered an infidelity which, while it affected submission to the church, in reality attacked the most important truths of religion. Peter Pomponatius, the most famous representative of this impious tendency, taught at Bologna and Padua that the immortality of the soul and providence are only philosophical problems. John Francis Pica, nephew of Pica de la Merondola, tells of a pope who did not believe a god, and of another who, having confessed to one of his friends that he did not believe in the immortality of the soul, appeared one night after his death to the same friend, and said to him, Ah, the eternal fire that consumes me makes me but too sensible of the immortality of that soul, which, according to the view I held, was to die with the body. This reminds us of the celebrated words which Leo X is alleged to have said to his secretary, Bembo. All ages know well enough of what advantage this fable about Christ has been to us and ours. Frivolous superstitions were attacked, but their place was supplied by infidelity with its disdainful, sneering laugh. To laugh at things, however sacred, was fashionable and a proof of wit, and if any value was set on religion, it was merely as a mean of governing the people. I have a fear, exclaimed Erasmus in 1516, and it is that, with the study of ancient literature, ancient paganism will reappear. It is true that then, as after the sarcasms of the age of Augustus, and as in our own times, after those of the last century, a new Platonic philosophy sprung up and attacked that irrational incredulity, seeking, like the philosophy of the present day, to inspire some respect for Christianity, and restore the religious sentiment to the heart. The Medici at Florence favoured these efforts of the Platonics but no philosophical religion will regenerate the church and the world. Proud, disdaining the preaching of the cross, and pretending to see nothing in Christian doctrines but figures and symbols which the majority of men cannot comprehend, it may bewilder itself in a mystical enthusiasm, but will always prove powerless either to reform or to save. What then must have happened had not true Christianity reappeared in the world, and had not faith filled the hearts of men anew with its power and its holiness? The Reformation saved religion and with it society, and therefore if the Church of Rome had had the glory of God and the good of the people at heart, it would have welcomed the Reformation with delight. But what were such things as these to Leo X? 
However, a torch could not be lighted in Italy without sending its beams beyond the Alps. The affairs of the church established a constant intercourse between the Italian peninsula and the other parts of Christendom, and the barbarians, being thus soon made to feel the superiority and pride of the Italians, began to blush for the imperfection of their language and their style. Some young noblemen, a Dalberg, a Langen, a Spiegelberg, inflamed with an eager desire of knowledge, passed over into Italy, and on their return to Germany brought back learning, grammar, and the classics, now so eagerly sought after, and communicated them to their friends. Shortly after, Rodolphe Agricola, a man of distinguished genius, appeared, and was held in as high veneration for his learning and genius as if he had lived in the age of Augustus or Pericles. The ardour of his mind and the fatigues of the school wore him out in a few years, but not till noble disciples had been trained, through intimate intercourse with him, to carry their master's fire all over Germany. Often, when assembled around him, they had together deplored the darkness of the church, and asked why Paul so often repeats that men are justified by faith and not by works. Around the feet of these new teachers soon gathered rustic youths, who lived by arms and studied without books, and who, divided into sections of priests of Bacchus, Arquebusiers and many more besides moved in disorderly bands from town to town and school to school. No matter, these strange bands were the commencement of a literary public. The masterpieces of antiquity began gradually to issue from the presses of Germany, supplanting the schoolmen, and the art of printing, discovered at Mayence in 1440, multiplied the energetic voices which remonstrated against the corruption of the church, and those voices not less energetic which invited the human mind into new paths. The study of ancient literature had in Germany very different effects from those which it had in Italy and France. Her study was combined with faith. In the new literary culture Germany turned her attention to the advantage which religion might derive from it. What had produced in some a kind of intellectual refinement, of a captious and sterile nature, penetrated the whole life of others, warmed their hearts, and prepared them for a better light. The first restorers of letters in France were characterized by levity, and often even by immorality of conduct. In Germany, their successors, animated by a spirit of gravity, zealously devoted themselves to the investigation of truth. Italy, offering her incense to profane literature and science, saw an infidel opposition arise. Germany, occupied with a profound theology and turning inwardly upon herself, saw the rise of an opposition based on faith. The one sapped the foundations of the church, and the other repaired them. Within the empire was formed a remarkable union of free, learned, and noble-minded men, among whom princes were conspicuous, who endeavoured to render science useful to religion. Some brought to their studies the humble faith of children, while others brought an enlightened and penetrating intellect, disposed perhaps to exceed the bounds of legitimate freedom and criticism. Both, however, contributed to clear the pavement of the temple from the obstructions produced by so many superstitions. 
the monkish theologians perceived their danger, and began to clamour against the very studies which they had tolerated in Italy and France, because in those countries they had gone hand in hand with levity and dissoluteness. They entered into a conspiracy to oppose the study of language and science, because they had caught a glimpse of faith following in their rear. A monk was putting someone on his guard against the heresies of Erasmus. In what, it was asked, do they consist? He confessed that he had not read the work of which he was speaking, but one thing he knew, that is, that Erasmus had written in too good Latin. The disciples of literature and the scholastic theologians soon came to an open rupture. The latter were in dismay when they saw the movement which was taking place in the domain of intellect, and thought that immobility and darkness were the best safeguards of the church. Their object in contending against the revival of letters was to save Rome, but they helped to ruin it. Here Rome had much at stake. Forgetting herself for an instant under the pontificate of Leo X, she abandoned her old friends and clasped her young adversaries in her arms. The papacy and letters formed an intimacy which seemed destined to break up the ancient alliance between monasticism and the hierarchy. At the first glance the popes perceived not that what they had taken for a whip was a sword capable of inflicting a mortal wound. In the same way, during the last century, princes were seen receiving at their court political and philosophic systems which, if carried into full effect, would have overturned their thrones. The alliance was not of long duration. Literature advanced without troubling itself about the injury which it might do to the power of its patron. The monks and schoolmen were aware that to abandon the Pope was just to abandon themselves and the Pope, notwithstanding of the passing patronage which he gave to the fine arts, was not the less active when he saw the danger in adopting measures, how much opposed soever they might be to the spirit of the time. The universities defended themselves as best they could against the invasion of new light. Cologne expelled Ragius, Leipzig, Celtes, Rostock, Hermann von den Busch, Still the new doctors, and with them the ancient classics, gradually and often even by the aid of princes, made good their footing in these public schools. Societies of grammarians and poets were soon established in spite of the schoolmen, and everything, even to the name of the literati, behoved to be converted into Latin and Greek. For how could the friends of Sophocles and Virgil have such names as Krakenberger or Schwarzerd? At the same time, a spirit of independence breathed in all the universities. Students were no longer seen in schoolboy fashion, with their books under their arms, walking sagely and demurely with downcast eye behind their masters. The petulance of a Marshal and an Ovid had passed into the new disciples of the Muses. It was transport to them to hear the sarcasms which fell in torrents on the dialectical theologians, and the heads of the literary movement were sometimes accused of favouring, or even exciting, the disorderly proceedings of the students. Thus a new world, emerging out of antiquity, was formed in the very heart of the world of the Middle Ages. The two parties could not avoid coming to blows, and the struggle was at hand. 
It began with the greatest champion of literature, with an old man on the eve of finishing his peaceful career. To secure the triumph of truth, the first thing necessary was to bring forth the weapons by which she was to conquer from the arsenals where they had lain buried for ages. These weapons were the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. It was necessary to revive in Christendom a love and study of sacred literature, both Greek and Hebrew. John Reuchlin was the individual whom divine providence selected for the purpose. A very fine boy's voice was remarked in the choir of the church of Pforzheim and attracted the attention of the Margrave of Baden. It was that of John Reuchlin, a young boy of agreeable manners and a lively disposition, son of an honest burgher of the place. The Margrave soon took him entirely under his protection, and in 1473 made choice of him to accompany his son Frederick to the University of Paris. The son of the bailiff of Pforzheim arrived with the prince, his heart exuberant with joy at being admitted to this school, the most celebrated of all the West. Here he found the Spartan Hermonymos and John Vesel, surnamed the Light of the World, and had an opportunity of engaging under skilful masters in the study of Greek and Hebrew, which had not then a single professor in Germany, and of which he was one day to be the restorer in the country of the Reformation. The poor young German made copies of the poems of Homer and the speeches of Isocrates for wealthy students, and in this way gained the means of continuing his studies and buying books. But what he hears from the mouth of Wesel is of a different nature, and makes a deep impression on his mind. The popes may be mistaken. All human satisfactions are blasphemy against Christ, who has perfectly reconciled and justified the human race. To God alone belongs the power of giving full absolution. There is no necessity for confessing our sins to a priest. There is no purgatory, at least if it be not God himself who is a devouring fire and purges away every defilement. Reuchlin, when scarcely twenty, teaches philosophy, Greek, and Latin at Baal, and a German, a thing then regarded as a wonder, is heard speaking Greek. The partisans of Rome begin to feel uneasy on seeing noble spirits at work among these ancient treasures. The Romans, says Reuchlin, are making mouths and raising an outcry, pretending that all these literary labours are hostile to Roman piety, inasmuch as the Greeks are schismatics. Oh, what toils and sufferings must be endured to bring Germany back to wisdom and knowledge! Shortly afterward, Eberhard of Württemberg invited Rochlin to Tübingen that he might be the ornament of this rising university, and in 1483 took him with him into Italy. At Florence his companions and friends were Chalcondylas, Orispa, and John Pica della Mirandola, at Rome, when Eberhard received a solemn audience of the Pope surrounded by his cardinals, Reuchlin delivered an address in such pure and elegant Latin that the assembly, who expected nothing of the kind from a barbarous German, were filled with the greatest astonishment, while the Pope exclaimed, Assuredly, this man deserves to take his place beside the best orators of France and Italy. 
Ten years later, Reuchlin was obliged to take refuge in Heidelberg at the court of the elector Philip to escape the vengeance of Eberhard's successor. Philip, in concert with John of Dalberg, Bishop of Worms, his friend and chancellor, exerted himself to spread the light which was beginning to peep forth from all parts of Germany. Dalberg had founded a library to which all the learned had free access, and Reuchlin, in this new sphere, made great efforts to remove the barbarism of his countrymen. Having been sent to Rome by the elector in 1498 on an important mission, he availed himself of all the time and all the money he could spare to make new progress in Hebrew under the learned Israelite Abdias Sforne, and purchased all the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts which he could find, with the view of employing them as so many torches to increase the light which was beginning to dawn in his native country. Argyropolis, a distinguished Greek, was at this time in the metropolis, explaining the ancient marvels of the literature of his country to a numerous audience. The learned ambassador repairs with his suite to the hall where the teacher was lecturing, and, after bowing to him, deplores the misery of Greece, expiring under the blows of the Ottomans. The astonished Hellenist asks the German, Who are you? Do you understand Greek? Reuchlin replies, I am a German, and know something of your tongue. At the request of Argyropoulos, he reads and explains a passage of Thucydides, which the professor had at the moment before him. Then Argyropoulos, filled with astonishment and grief, exclaims, Alas, alas, Greece, opposed and obliged to flee, has gone and hid herself beyond the Alps. Thus the sons of rude Germany and those of ancient learned Greece met in the palaces of Rome, and the East and West shook hands in this rendezvous of the world, the one pouring into the lap of the other those intellectual treasures which had with difficulty been saved from the barbarism of the Ottomans. God, when his designs require it, employs some great catastrophe to break down the barrier and instantly bring together those who seemed to be for ever parted. Reuchlin, on his return to Germany, was able to go back to Württemberg, and proceeded, at this time especially, to execute those works which proved so useful to Luther and the Reformation. This individual, who, as Count Palatine, held an eminent station in the empire, and who, as a philosopher, contributed to humble Aristotle and exalt Plato, made a Latin dictionary which supplanted those of the schoolmen, composed a Greek grammar which greatly facilitated the study of that language, translated and expounded the penitential psalms, corrected the Vulgate, and was the first in Germany, this constitutes his highest merit and glory, who published a Hebrew grammar and dictionary. By this work, Reuchlin opened the long sealed books of the Old Testament and reared a monument, as he himself expresses it, more durable than brass. It was not merely by his writings, but also by his life, that Reuchlin sought to advance the reign of truth. Tall in stature, of commanding appearance and affable address, he instantly gained the confidence of all with whom he had any intercourse. His thirst for knowledge was equalled only by his zeal in communicating it. 
he spared neither money nor labour to introduce the editions of the classics into Germany as they issued from the presses of Italy, and in this way the son of a bailiff did more to enlighten his countrymen than rich municipalities or powerful princes. His influence over youth was great, and in this respect who can calculate how much the Reformation owes to him? We will give only one example. His cousin, a young man named Schwarzerd, the son of an artisan, who had acquired celebrity as an armourer, came to lodge with his sister Elizabeth in order to study under his direction. Reuchlin, delighted at the genius and application of his young pupil, adopted him. Advice, presents of books, examples, nothing in short he spared to make his relative useful to the church and to his country. He rejoiced to see his work prospering under his eye, and, thinking the name Schwarzerd too barbarous, translated it into Greek, and named the young student Melanchthon. It was Luther's illustrious friend. But grammatical studies did not satisfy Reuchlin. Like his masters, the Jewish doctors, he began to study the hidden meaning of the word. God, he said, is a spirit. The word is a breath. Man breathes. God is the word. The names which he has given himself are an echo of eternity. Like the Kabbalists, he hoped to pass from symbol to symbol, from form to form, till he arrived at the last and purest of all forms, that which regulates the power of the spirit. While Reuchlin was bewildering himself in these quiet and abstruse researches, the enmity of the schoolmen forced him suddenly, and much against his will, into a fierce war, which was one of the preludes of the Reformation. There was at Cologne a baptized rabbin named Pfefferkorn, who was intimately connected with the inquisitor Hochstraten. This man and the Dominicans solicited and procured from the emperor Maximilian, it may have been with good intentions, an order, in virtue of which the Jews were to bring all their Hebrew books, the Bible excepted, to the town-house of the place where they resided. There the books were to be burned. The motive alleged was that they were full of blasphemies against Jesus Christ. It must be confessed that they were at least full of absurdities, and that the Jews themselves would not have lost much by the intended execution. The emperor desired Reuchlin to give his opinion of the books. The learned doctor expressly singled out all the books which were written against Christianity, leaving them to their destined fate, but he tried to save the others. The best method of converting the Israelites, added he, would be to establish two Hebrew professors in each university who might teach theologians to read the Bible in Hebrew and thus refute the Jewish doctors. The Jews, in consequence of this advice, obtained restitution of their books. The proselytes and the inquisitors, like hungry ravens which see their prey escape, sent forth cries of fury. Picking out different passages from the writings of Reuchlin, and perverting their meaning, they denounced the author as a heretic, accused him of a secret inclination to Judaism, and threatened him with the fetters of the Inquisition. Reuchlin was at first taken by surprise, but these men, always becoming more and more arrogant and prescribing dishonourable terms, he, in 1513, published A Defence Against His Detractors of Cologne, in which he painted the whole party in vivid colours. 
the Dominicans vowed vengeance, and hoped by an act of authority to re-establish their tottering power. Hochstraten at Mayence drew up a charge against Reuchlin, and the learned works of this learned man were condemned to the flames. The innovators, the masters and disciples of the new school, feeling that they were all attacked in the person of Reuchlin, rose as one man. Times were changed. Germany and literature were very different from Spain and the Inquisition. The great literary movement had created a public opinion. Even the dignified clergy were somewhat influenced by it. Reuchlin appeals to Leo X, and that pope, who had no great liking for ignorant monks and fanatics, remits the whole affair to the Bishop of Spires, who declares Reuchlin innocent and condemns the monks in the expenses of process. The Dominicans, those props of the papacy, filled with rage, recur to the infallible decision of Rome, and Leo, not knowing how to act between the two hostile powers, issues a mandate superseding the process. The union of letters with faith forms one of the characteristic features of the Reformation, and distinguishes it both from the introduction of Christianity and the religious revival of the present day. The Christians, who were contemporary with the Apostles, had the refinement of their age against them, and with some few exceptions it is the same now. But the majority of literary men were with the Reformers. Even public opinion was favourable to them. The work thereby gained in extent, but perhaps it lost in depth. Luther, sensible of all that Reuchlin had done, wrote to him shortly after his victory over the Dominicans, The Lord has acted through you, in order that the light of Holy Scripture may again begin to shine in this Germany, where, for many ages, alas, it was not only smothered, but almost extinguished. End of Book 1, Chapter 7